0: Great, thank you, Sarah. And today's um, a really topical um, information set today, given what's happening in the economy. Um, But before we sort of go through um, what we're going to be talking about today, it's probably worth me just explaining where uh, Colin and I met as a a quick story, because it is relevant to what we're talking about today. Um, About seven years ago, both Colin and I were were working at at Rio Tinto, and I was tasked to evaluate HSC, health, safety, and environmental risk um, globally. And in working with the procurement team, um, the global sourcing team out of Singapore, I was tasked to evaluate a bunch of different categories um, across a spend of about uh, $15 billion. Um, and the lucky winner um, of the, the category that I was to work with based on risk was Colin. Um, so Colin was heading up the, um, the hydrocarbons category. So as you might appreciate, transporting ammonium nitrate um, from China into the Hunter Valley was full of um, both threats and opportunities, um, and ultimately ended up in Colin helping us as part of a a critical control management program, which we'll talk a bit about later today. So we will talk more broadly around the economy and some of the macro factors affecting um, both contractors and suppliers. Um, And along the way, feel free asking some questions through the chat and hopefully we can share some tips and a few stories along the way. So a quick poll, um, if, you, if you wouldn't mind there, Sarah. Um, so um, we've been running the health and safety index for a little while now. Um, and just a quick question. Um, what's the health and safety index um, poorest result um, for contractors versus employees? So um, on the screen, that there, there's four options there. So as part of the health and safety index, um, we ask similar questions to what's on the screen at the moment. Um, we slice and dice the information and, and more recently, we've de- developed some benchmarks and, and pulled out some interesting information, um, including comparing contractors versus employees. So, um, We'll wait a few few seconds for, for people to, um, I guess, have a guess on what they think the, the, the poorest result is um, or the biggest gap between contractors and employees. And um, I can share with you the results um, when people are ready. Okay,
1: I'll just give it a, a couple more seconds because we're almost there with the, everybody. Um, okay, it's still coming in. Hold on.
0: Okay, here are the results. Okay, really interesting. So um, almost half the people um, ha- had um, voted that uh, feeling pressure to compromise safety um, and closely followed by shortcuts and um, safety violations. And-, and no one's selected um, bullying, um, interesting. So. Although the, the actual health and safety index result um, doesn't come up as a percentage um, to what we've described um, today, or the results as a per- average percentage of the, the callers, um, the actual um, difference between the results or the porous result um, was B. So um, people guessed correctly in terms of it being um, the porous result. Um, a little bit later on the session, we'll go through and unpack that a little bit more um, and explain some factors why that might be the case, um, and be very interested to get some feedback from everyone on the call today as well. So, Colin, um, you're the procurement expert here. So, so tell us, you know, based on your observations in the last um, six to 12 months, what are some of the macro shifts you're seeing in the marketplace at the moment?
1: Um, Colin, you'll have to unmute yourself. There we go, just
2: testing. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. And uh, hello, everybody. It's, it's uh, fantastic to be here uh, uh, with the BIOSH sort of webinar and uh, contributing some procurement and supply context into this conversation. It's probably not something that is normally done in the health and safety environment, but, but I think both groups are, are kind of linked in many ways and certainly work with Mark and HSE teams uh, quite often with clients as well in, in procurement and putting contracts together but I, I guess for me the question is out there to everybody is have you ever seen a, a, such a crazy time as it is today in the supply chain world? Um, I've been in supply chain for 21 years and I've never seen so much chaos I guess and and I want to share with you today some some insights that I think that you know I'd be, be coming to uh, feel a bit normal but also stressing and pulling a lot of pressure on companies and organisations as well. So, um, so Mark, do you just want to go to the next slide and we'll just step our way through this one? I shouldn't be too long. So yeah, in essence, you know, what, you know, what are your goods and uh, the materials uh, supply? You know, do you have less options and, and greater lead times? Well, if if you go around Bunnings these days or, or some other the large um, supermarkets, even there is definitely some stuff missing. I mean, I personally was, trying to buy some some rubber gloves the other day to do some painting here at home. And uh, yeah, look, I couldn't get them in Bunnings and and also some specialised painting equipment. I couldn't get them. There's also some some other products that are simply not available. Um, Tiles at the moment are also short and uh, difficult to get hold of. So certainly from from a personal perspective, um, we're seeing some of that building material um, becoming yeah, becoming tighter and, and I guess less options as well. Um, and, you know, compromising. Yeah, I guess uh, we recently bought some tiles and uh, we had to change the size because we the ones we wanted, uh, we couldn't get until April of next year. So that was like uh, us having to uh, understand the supply chain ourselves and what does it mean? So, um, and maybe to expand a little bit on that, Mark, what we'll do is go to the next slide. So what I want to do here is there's, there's, a, there's a little sort of a, well, I suppose a racetrack track down the bottom here with goods, raw materials, supply chain, factory, supply chain, and then the customer. Now that's a typical, what I'm calling a make move and consume cycle. Now within the make and move cycle, um, most people are aware, obviously that when you're in manufacturing and, and producing goods and selling goods, you know, there's usually a raw material involved. Uh, today, and if you're watching YouTube and CNN and all that, it won't come as a surprise to you that copper is now at a 10-year high. Aluminium is at levels not seen in, in a long, long time. Um, we also know that rebar and, and and lumber have recently been in the press globally. So there's a heck of a lot of shortage of raw materials. Um, but the reality is I don't think there's a lot of the shortage isn't necessarily because it's not in the ground any longer or not necessarily being produced by the primary suppliers. One, one of the biggest issues we've got right now is the supply chain, and in particular, the sea supply chain, You know the, the containers, the break bulk. Um, there's a lot of containers around the world stranded in, in different ports. For example, a lot of containers coming out of China, making their way into Australia, but because Australia isn't producing the same and and shipping them back vis-a-vis, you know, uh, the wine isn't going back into China, many other things, right? There's a lot of stranded containers. And this is an example throughout the world. And, you know, containerization prices have gone up. They've actually gone up times four and times six in some cases. And and freight, there's been a lot of bottlenecks of various ports around the world. In particular, China has five or six of the largest ports in the world. And they've also been struggling with COVID and closed them down. This goes back to the supply issue 18 months ago when the whole world closed down, And we're, we're probably going to be in this mode for a while, actually, until we wait for, for, for a rebalancing within the supply chain. And because of that, we're going to see a lot of shortages. And, and as you guys already know, that the silicon chip shortage is something that is already been spoken about with, uh, with the White House team in the U.S. The government's extremely concerned and they want to know a lot more what's going on there. So you're saying to yourself, well, I'm in HSE, calling, what's that gonna do with, with us? Well, what's also happening is as well at the factory and certainly at the supply chain land side, there's a lot of people shortages. And, and I think the story for us here in Australia in particular is, is around the borders and around the constraint of people. And I think, Matt, we can talk a little bit more about that in the next next slide, I think.
0: Yeah, great, Colin. I think um, apart from materials, I know we're going to be talking about both um, skill shortages and and contractors, but um, not being an economist, based on on, on your view, Colin, the implications for the safety world here is, I mean, it just flows down and cascades down into implications around cost, around time pressures, around business resources and... um, I've also had some personal dealings in terms of buying cars and things like that recently. And you know, there's lots of talk in the media around house prices and the, the mismatch between wages. Um, what we are seeing, um, I guess, as um, putting the safety lens on now is that th- those pressures are flowing down into the supply chain and impacting on individuals. Um, so I guess as we go through today, I'd be really keen to get some feedback from people on the, on the call through the chat um, from examples of where they've had supply chain issues or pressures placed on them, and the impact that has on safety. Um, and, and, and a really good example there. And if people want to use the chat, you know, there's a couple of questions here, Colin, um, that you've put together, um, and these are questions for people on the call today. You can use the chat. Um, you know, are you experiencing labour shortages or, or skill shortages, and that could be part of your safety team. Um, or it could be part of your operations team. Um, and beyond price, you know, are there any strategies that you've got um, in place to be able to attract good talent, both your contracted uh, talent and also your employees? So Colin, um, I'm starting to see a few people answer those questions now, but um, feel free to elaborate on that and um, let me know how you'd like me to negotiate the presentation.
2: Yeah. No. Look. Fine. I think if you go to the next slide, Mark. I think um, we'll, we'll we'll put some meat on the bone here if we can. No
0: problem. So we've got um, both Ian and John agreeing these shortages are, are certainly impacting them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Look, and and, and hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully we we get a couple more. But I think this slide here, pack up here for a minute. The, the, there's two reasons for this slide. Obviously, first of all. Um, you know, the great resignation, there is there is certainly, I think, uh, under COVID, a mental process uh, going on with people, you know, certainly um, for for people working from home, obviously now, you know, uh, having a lot more time to reflect on their goals and personal lives and do I still want to work for this company. There's definitely a lot of that going on here. And I think, Mark, you make a good point by bringing this, this up here. But ultimately, I think that's a new phenomena. But I think what's been actually a a more older phenomena, which hasn't been addressed, is, is for example, the truck driver um, situation. In Australia, we, you know, um, have been heavily involved with with the logistics community. uh, And I've been doing some research. And and what is interesting is that, you know, there is uh, the average age of a global truck driver in these four is 50 years old right now. And it's obviously increasing, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of questions about why, why why is the trucking industry in particular, this one so unattractive? Well, you know, as we all know, right, in long hours, the pay isn't necessarily huge when you break it down to a dollar per hour. Um, there's time pressure on, on people, um, you know, certainly key performance indicators are in contracts. And and people are held to account, you know. Certainly in the supply chain world these days, and, and you know, and right now what we've seen is a fuel crisis in the UK. And I think I think it's an important part here for us to think about. Certainly in Australia, you know, we've got obviously you know the states are pretty much locked down. But if you think UK in the last sort of two to three weeks, um, massive problems with fuel supply, uh, and in particular. That is an island, obviously, so you don't have the migration of people. A little bit like what we've got in Australia, and they're 100,000 short of uh, of drivers. And not only they're short, but the current drivers that they've got are also, you know, sort of uh, getting on in age as well. So what we're seeing here is, is is very much a supply chain problem on the land, so to speak, as I was talking about my, uh, my process earlier on, and in particular, an example where... With borders closed, there's no sort of movement of labor. Um, I have got other clients as well who have got, um, got one client, they've got 70 vacancies, you know, they, and they simply can't get hold of enough people in the state that they're in. Um, and so in particular, a couple of weeks ago, I put out a, a post on, on my LinkedIn that procurement roles, there were 24% more vacancies for procurement people uh, than they were four months ago. Um, it's not that people aren't trying, you know, it's people can't move. And, 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 and I think, you know, that's putting a lot of stress on uh, not only individuals, it's putting stress on, on companies as well. And, and I think th- this whole story about um, being captured within the border it is, is obviously having a stressful time, uh, you know, with, with individuals and companies. And it's manifesting itself um, to, dare I say, compromising on a lot of systems process. And dare I say it, some values as well, Mark. And, and I think the next slide, I think, really highlights this.
0: Yeah, look, definitely, Colin. And, um, you know, the safety community often talk around uh, both lead and lag indicators. Um, and these macro events are probably a good lead indicator, not necessarily of safety, health and safety performance, but a lead indicator on how you might want to start thinking about managing risk. If we know that this um, supply, demand and supply issue is not going to be solved overnight, um, you know, are organisations and teams starting to think around, well, what are these implications to their workforce and their business and how they're best going to manage them?
2: Yeah, 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 I I think so. Uh, So this one, look, I think uh, here compromising on safety, and I can see a couple of really cool comments coming through as well about uh, seeing interim controls being required, I think this slide talks a little bit to that. But uh, on the left-hand side here, where we've got the the, the, the black and white, uh, the black and yellow um, um, banner, but you know, you know, when supply is short, have you experienced operations that make do, compromise, and throw out the rule book? Um, and and look keen to hear the the commentary from from the audience. But I want to overlay that with the picture on the right-hand side. Look, I've taken the name of the company off. It's, it's, uh, that's not important here. But this has come from social media. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I actually think it, it actually calls out what's going on at the moment with compromise. So, so the story here was that the guy, the guy on the left, John, from, from London, he, he was congratulated for passing his heavy goods vehicle test. Um, after a small incident during the test. Well, if you look at the truck, I mean, it's hardly a small incident, isn't it? But the, the story here is that, you know, if this was normal times with uh, maybe pre-COVID, plenty of people moving around, you can be quite selective on who you select. <laughs> but here, look, they're desperate for people. They need trucks. The army's been called into the UK. So this was a meme. Uh, this is not a, a genuine one, but I thought it captured the essence of the risks that people are willing to take or companies, et cetera, because of shortages of goods. People will make do. People will compromise. And people will sometimes throw out the rule book because they're under pressure. And I think that goes back to your poll, right, Mark? I think, I think the poll results were feeling pressured to, to compromise on safety. And I think if we link that back to the poll, and this is what it looks like or what it could look like, it is, is the scenario where you're happy to accept, you know, the lowest, if not the worst case scenario. And how does the procurement team, the health and safety team, when putting a contract together, how, how do we flex the contract in a way that we can assure supply to, to the organization but also making sure that we don't have any major fatalities, health and safety risks, and we keep the integrity of of the system in place. And, and I think that's probably the biggest challenge that you know the, the HSE community and the procurement community have got right now, certainly in the inbound space uh, for for goods and services. Yeah,
0: true, 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 Colin. I think um, when the 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 stats around compromising safety really is um, a bit of just an an indicator of the nature of contracting. You know, often it's short-term specialised work, um, an extension of the workforce, um, you're zipping in, zipping out. So I think um, overlay that with all these other things that you're talking about. It's potentially the perfect storm for some organisations in terms of their risk profile, depending on the nature of their business and activity that's being performed. Um, Catherine's also just raised a really good point here is that um, the pool of experienced workers is um, limited too. So you can see the sort of knock on effect here around the the potential issues that organisations are going to continue to face. um, And if they want to continue to operate, what sort of contingency plans are are going to be put in place to to do that? And um, as we walk through the rest of the presentation, hopefully we can sort of provide a few little tips and tricks along the way there too. So the, um, the next slide, Colin, um, you know, again, happy for people to, to jump on the chat there. Um, what you can see here is a, a, a little infographic on a, on a typical contractor life cycle. Um, appreciate that um, each organization could be slightly different. Um, so for the people on the call, you know, use the chat if you feel comfortable. You know, where in your contractor life cycle um, do you find the greatest challenges? You know, be that in the selection phase, when you're sourcing um, some contractors um, through the engagement or pre qualification process that you have, <coughs> excuse me, the mobilisation, induction, management, and the monitoring and review. Um, be really interested to understand people um, on the call today in the chat, you know, one, two, three, four, or five, uh, jump in there. Um, provide us a, a bit of an indicator where you're finding the biggest challenges. Um, What we have seen some organizations do is start to map out um, across their life cycle, um, a bit of a risk profile um, so they can better manage risk. um, So they can better um, come up with some solid controls, um, improved controls around the life cycle of their contractors. Um, We've also worked with some organizations to actually help them with their, their software as well in terms of understanding their requirements prior to um, selecting and deploying software. So the principles remain the same. um, That most organizations have some sort of uh, life cycle. Um, Some people focus, um, they've got a bias for focusing up front around the pre-qualification and then just um, let the contractor do their thing. Um, Others, depending on the nature of what they do, might focus on other areas. So Ian's responded here with uh, one, two, three and four. Um, um, Someone else has responded with four and five, um, which is is pretty common. Um, Usually the the desktop component can be quite straightforward for a lot of organizations that have got some solid systems in place up front. Um, And actually the implementation of behaviors on site can be another struggle again. Um, So I'll I'll, I'll continue on the slide here, Colin, um, and we'll, we'll start to talk a little bit more around contractor management. Um, and, and Colin's got the ex, a lot of expertise in this area, particularly contracts. But um, here are some, um, I guess, um, research and, and data points. Um, one's from the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors. Um, they published an article back into 2019 saying that of the, um, the top um, 200 ASX listed companies in 2018, um, 70% of fatalities were related to contractors. Um, There's another research article there um, um, published in September 2020 and and they've called out um, in this journal article four key areas um, where organisations really struggle around contractor management um, around safety and that's the variability of the work. communication from um, top layers of the organization and that communication and safety messaging filtering through to the front line. Um, The expertise of work versus safety. Um, So often contracts and contractors are um, evaluated based on the ability to do operational work, um, which makes complete sense. Um, Trying to overlay that to um, evaluate safety performance at the front end um, often is quite difficult. Some organizations have a go, no go zone um, around their pre crawl. Other organizations have different ways to manage that risk. But certainly there's a big difference between evaluating capability of people to perform the work versus uh, performing it safely. Um, And the final one, which really ties in with, um, I guess, our findings with the health and safety index surveys is time pressures, um, taking shortcuts or cutting corners. Um, as being another call out uh, around pro- contractors. And again, that's probably just an indicator of the nature of the work that they're doing too, albeit uh, you know, not an excuse for those sorts of behaviours. Um, we've also got a, another response here in the chat um, calling out JSA permits and inductions being a real struggle with contractors. And so through that, that management phase of the contractor life cycle. Um, So if we just understand, and at least acknowledge there's a lot of information out there in the marketplace around some of these challenges, um, both at a macro level and uh, specifically dealing with contractors, Um, the challenge now is, well, how do we actually manage that effectively? So um, there's a QR code on the screen. So uh, hopefully most people know how to use a QR code now. feel free to to use that. We've got a blog with a bunch of articles and information which describe not only the the contractor safety results, but some other benchmark data and a few tips and tricks on things that you might want to consider in terms of improving health and safety. not only of contractors, but there's some articles in there around fatigue, mental health and wellbeing as well. Um, So as an extension of what Colin's already spoken about, Um, this is almost like the the end result. It's not necessarily a a cause, um, but but certainly an indicator um, of what, um, not what I'm saying or or my research. This is what thousands and thousands of people across Australia and New Zealand in particular, are telling us. Um, This is what their observations are in in the workplace. Um, So compared to contractors, employees, you can see, as we've spoken about already, uh, pressure to compromise safety is the, the biggest variability. Um, but we're also seeing some outages in other areas. Um, surprisingly though, out of the 55 questions um, in the survey that we do use, contractors actually, uh, their results were actually better across the board compared to employees. So this um, actually, this paints a pretty dire picture around contractors, but um, these are just the lowest results. Um, and majority of performance was actually quite solid. So. Um, but I guess it's also, I guess, very valid, um, particularly in light of some of the conversations we had already um, around contractor management um, and the supply chain.
2: I think there's also an element here as well, Mark. Uh, having, um, you know, certainly for for hay procurement, we we certainly get involved supporting clients with contractor management uh, and and in particular contract management, right? Which uh, which is, you know, making sure that the contractors following the contract. But I think there's, there's also a learning here as well for, for, for the organizations who are employing contractors, because if you look at, you know for example, um, taking shortcuts and pressure to compromise on safety, w- what I've also come across with large organization is that um, a contractor may well be, have been awarded a contract to uh, like a facilities management company to run and operate, for example, the facility, you know? Um, They've got maybe a month to get up to speed, where the employees there have actually had a long time to understand what, how how the operating manual. Um, one particular client of mine had an operating manual of about 600 pages thick, double sided, right? So, you know, I think that there is a need on both sides, both the, the company who is looking for the service providers to do a good service, to make it as simple. Uh, and as clear as possible. So, you know, shortcuts aren't taken, um, you know, because it depends what the shortcuts are, right? I mean, if it's a 600 page document with uh, a two or 300 process steps that they've, they've done a shortcut on, well, you know, I I guess, I, I guess sometimes there is an improvement on the, on the specification side that's required as well. So I think, you know, pressure to compromise on safety, well, yeah, you know, if you're the contractor, quite often you could be there for a certain amount of time. You're not an employee. You have a start, a middle and an end. Um, but equally, the specification. Yeah. You know, at nine times out of 10, the excuse given back to the people delivering the service will was, well, you knew what it was in the tender. But you know what? Nine times out of 10, people who've got to do the work, the contractor, isn't the person that was actually responding to the tender. They're completely two different animals. The business development team and the execution team are two different people. But, you know, and I think sometimes, you know, certainly in procurement, I'm quite aware that I could well be talking to the person that's not going to deliver the service. And therefore, sometimes I've got to challenge the business and say, well, look, you know, is there any way we can simplify this as well? Because all you're going to end up with is um, a suboptimal outcome, you know?
0: Yeah, and look, Colin, that's a really good segue into the next, um, I guess, phase of this presentation around the trade-off between compliance and culture. I know certainly when we were working together, Colin, that handover process between the the, the sourcing team um, and the the people that actually had to deliver the contract was really important, and having HSE or, or risk professionals right at the very front end of um, the the sourcing process made that transition much, much easier and much easier to, to manage risk. Um, and in terms of making life easier, um, it's a, it's an ongoing question that we get around, well, how, how do you make life easy? Because, you know, if by nature contractors do feel like they're under pressure um, and they are having to compromise safety, the last thing you want to do is get them to fill out a massive pre-qualification um, uh, process or I'll jump through a bunch of red tape if it's not completely necessary um, so you know there's lots of different ways you, uh, around simplifying and removing clutter and all those things that um, organizations um, commonly do. Um, another interesting approach is to start to try and segment uh, your contractors and suppliers so if you think about the the, the work that you um, organisations can do to differentiate between um, contractors based on risk or size or the nature of the work, um, it lends itself to potentially making life easier for people. So rather than having a one size fits all, there there could be an ability to actually simplify uh, the process or simplify the way that you engage and collaborate uh, with businesses. Um, I was working with um, a, a client recently with some federal safety commissioner work Um, And there's a specific um, piece in there around IRAC or risk management processes around subcontractor management. Um, They were providing a a go, go, uh, no-go pre-qualification process. Um, And they said they didn't didn't need to differentiate. They were quite happy with um, the way that they're running their contractors. One of the questions I asked was are you having any issues with your contractors? Um, And then the project manager and about three other people behind him started to uh, give us all these complaints around poor performing contractors. So my initial response was, how do you differentiate based on performance and how can you better manage to get a better outcome based on segmenting your contractors on on performance? So this changed the whole conversation around it, going from a a compliance exercise to, to meet federal safety commissioner Uh, obligations to, hang on a second, we can actually use this to add value to our business. Um, So um, this is just a really simple model. Um, So if we take the example that um, I had with Collins seven years ago, hydrocarbons was um, in a top corner of the quadrant um, and we had professional services down the other end of the quadrant. So that helped us very quickly based on the criteria that we put together. Um, that align with the organisational strategy and the procurement strategy to really target um, and segment categories of contractors um, and even contracting companies um, based on different parameters. So for some organisations that could be threats, it could be opportunities, um, it could be value of the contract, it could be the performance of the contractor, it could be the activity that's being performed, it could be a whole range of different things based on the even the project life cycle where they're at in the project um, and this could be a, a dynamic process but um in very simple terms um, you know we encourage organizations to start thinking outside the box a little bit in terms of um differentiating a little bit um, and keeping life simple um but not necessarily um, throwing a whole bunch of paperwork at um, suppliers and asking them to to all fill out um, lengthy processes if it's not completely necessary.
2: I think on that one, Mark, I think maybe the old adage that 80% of your risk sits with 20% of your suppliers, you know, where I've seen the view that 100% of the risk sits with 100% of the suppliers. Well, that's just gonna, you know, I think as Nick Christie has just written on here and said that, you know, uh, I found separating contractors and providers of goods and providers of services, a simple way to establish more robust systems around management. I think that's a a fantastic, mature comment, you know, with regards to um, segregating suppliers around the risk profile and uh, in particular, critical critical risk as well at the the cornerstone of it.
0: Fantastic. Um, So moving on to, um, I I guess, stage three, then around engagement of this presentation today, Now, we'll talk about different ways to engage uh, contractors and suppliers. So differentiating, understanding um, those contractors or categories um, of goods and services that you actually want to focus on allows you to then allocate resources accordingly. Um, Unfortunately, Colin and I got to intimately know each other and we spent a lot of time together um, talking about ammonium nitrate, um, whereas the professional services team I didn't necessarily spend as much time with because... It certainly wasn't a priority. Um, and the way that Colin engaged his contracting teams, you know, the, the shells, the chevrons on the world was very different to the way that we engage other contractors and suppliers um, based on return on investment. Um, so um, doing that segmentation up front is really important. Um, in terms of collaborating with both contractors and suppliers, um, if, you, if you ask... Compliance questions. and you just focus on basic compliance questions. The chances are you're going to get a very basic compliant culture. Um, but if you start to shift those conversations, shift your process, or or shift the the mindset around collaborating with your contractors and suppliers, particularly those that um, are prioritised. Um, you know there are there are some great great um, opportunities to be able to uh, leverage expertise. Um, create innovation, improve risk controls, um, and um, again, there's a whole different whole different ways to be able to do that. Um, certainly, um, a- apart from basic pre-qual, um, we do encourage larger organisations to use surveys to to be able to understand how their contractors are thinking and feeling, because often you just don't have the visibility of your contractors and suppliers, particularly if they're working in remote locations. Um, you know, there, there could be different um, methods of workshops or meetings or whatever. Uh, Colin, from your point of view, um, in terms of engaging and collaborating um, with suppliers, um, I recall you using social media a lot um, um, back at Rio Tinto, but the, there are other really simple ways you you can um, give some advice on how to better collaborate with contractors, suppliers.
2: Well. yeah look i mean what, what one really good example sort of i can give here was that um each each i think it was each quarter we want one large uh, asx company they would have um a positive share with uh with with the company um whether it would be they would put a lean board up and they would put it on a bit of a powerpoint and then we would share that around that was a value add or we would move some fleet from point A to point B to a safer location, you know, we would make a, a, a one page, um, I guess, success story, we called them. And after 12 months, what we did then was, we had an album, we called it the uh, the improvement album. And that album actually uh, were then circulated right across the business. Um, it was, you know, there was no IP, it was about safety, it was about improvement. And, and it was a, a nice glossy story, as you could imagine, you know, uh, you know on, on a PowerPoint, there was a picture, there was, there was a story, what the problem was, what, what, what the two partners did together. And it generated a collaborative narrative, because quite often, you know, um, we just do things, we do good things every day with our external partners, um, but we don't necessarily capture it. And I think sometimes we've got to capture the story. Uh, and, and the value add becomes when you share that around with with a wider network actually creates momentum and, and, and further thinking. And, 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 you know, you get people that will challenge it, but most people will take it away and have a look at how they can apply that maybe in a different scenario. So for me, you know, certainly it, it's about sometimes obviously um, giving a lot of credit to, to your provider, celebrating the success showing how you are both sort of um, uh, making things better for each other for obviously for, for the contractor or, or the partner for them it's about innovation and something that they can use to build their business where, where for procurement and the HSE team you know it could be seen as hey look we've got the right partner they, they're doing the right things and we've got some evidence here for it so yeah moving from as you said mark on on this graph here yeah, moving from left to right on the on the x-axis, I think you know it's going to take time it takes trust it takes commitment um and and you look in and in the end if you if you follow it and stick to the to the discipline um, you'll get good results
0: thanks Colin so we'll we'll move on given um we we've probably got about 20 minutes left and we want to allow a little bit of time for QA Q&A as well um so the the the, the last, or the second last section of um, the presentation is around measurement um so here's just a really simple example of different um, ways organizations can measure health and safety. I appreciate that um, there is no one way. Um, and it's, again, um, a, quite a polarizing conversation for many. Um, I usually advise clients to align any sort of metrics that they want to measure with their with their strategy. Um, so um, whatever, metrics are used. Obviously you wanna try and um, ensure that they're driving the right behavior and don't have any unintended consequences. But the the model here just throws up some examples around considering both lead and lag indicators, um, understanding internal regulatory drivers both as versus external regulatory drivers. I mean, a really good example there would be to have some sort of contractual arrangement in place where, or some sort of expectation where you know, if there was a, a, a serious incident um, or a notifiable incident that needed to be reported, it is that the contractor actually informed you about it. Um, from a very basic compliance reactive point of view through to some more um, mature organisations are using, you know, the ICMM framework to really understand critical controls and collaborating with contractors around not telling them how to do their job but working with them to ensure that those critical controls are are effective Um, through to um, some other frameworks in place or in the oil and gas industry, um, which has got a little bit more focus on potential consequence and and different measures in around how you might frame up some of that reporting to better understand some of those metrics as well. So in terms of um, a risk-based way of improvement. We've spoken about using risk already up front in terms of segmenting contractors. Um, certainly understanding the risk throughout the life cycle of the contract is going to be really important um, and tying that back into what you're measuring. Um, here's a, a really simple um, little example or activity that we perform as part of our contractor workshops we do with organisations. So. Sarah, if you're still with us, um, if you wouldn't mind pulling up the poll. Um, so a really, and there's no one right or wrong answer here, by the way. Um, the question is, do your systems, I say typically some sort of management system or technology, um, treat all contractors equally? Um, and the example given here is, um, you've got two window cleaning organization, you know, both, are performing very similar activity, high-risk work um, at height. Uh, One's usually a a one-off type of a scenario, and the other one's a a large five-year contract. Um, Contractor one, small organization. Contractor two, a a multinational. So you can see here, there's the the, the common components is the high-risk work that they're performing, um, and the variability is the size of the organization um, and the length of the contract. So um, as people start thinking about the yes or no, we asked a very similar question as part of a workshop recently. And we had one organisation say, um, they've got very rigid systems around pre-qualification and they absolutely, all contractors must go through the same rigorous process, um, which is absolutely fine for that organisation. Whereas other, someone else in the room said, no, we we tailor make um, our, our sourcing and selection process. And in the back end, it was almost the opposite. So um, obviously, there's lots of variability here based on, um, you know, the nature of the organisation and and the contractor at play. But it would be very interesting to understand from people today on whether or not your systems do treat all contractors equally or or there is an ability to to have some flexibility in there. Okay. um, i just leave it a couple of seconds
1: and then, all right.
0: Share that now. Oh, it's almost a 50-50 split, Sarah. So we've got um, 54% of people saying yes. Um, They do have um, systems uh, that treat all contractors equally. Um, So there's not a lot of differentiation in there. Um, And then um, 46% saying no. So you can see here, I mean, clearly there's not one way to do this, um, but certainly as you start thinking about improving the way that you manage contractors across the whole life cycle, is understand whether or not those systems need to be uh, quite rigid um, or whether there's some flexibility in there. Um, and, you know, a, a really good example is um, your contract. Um, you know, is it a purchase order? Is it a, um, um, is it, some sort of short-term contract or is it a five-year contract and are those contracts all going to have the same health and safety requirements? Um, I'm certainly not going to say that they do. Um, It really depends on the nature of the organisation but certainly having a thinking about some of these things and and reflecting and working in with your procurement teams um, could be a really good opportunity to improve and collaborate uh, with your, your contractors and your suppliers. So uh, apart from understanding um, how you might treat contractors differently, um, another thing to think about um, is trying to understand what controls you might put in place um, as an organisation or what controls your contractors might have in place. Um, And often uh, based on your role within the organisation, based on the nature of the contract, whether it's you're a head contractor, whether it's a labor hire arrangement, whether it's a short term contract, um, a white collar arrangement where you're providing all of the direction. um, Your ability to understand the role, um, the influence and control that you do have, um, really um, will help inform how you would then manage that contractor or supplier. Um, If we take the example that Colin and I used a few years ago now, Now, the importation of ammonium nitrate from China um, into the Hunter Valley had a range of different uh, factors that needed to be considered. Um, And our ability to to really understand how effective those controls were across um, the the supply chain um, and the life cycle of the actual contract um, was quite involved um, given the potential consequence it had um, of, you know, transporting such a large quantity of ammonium nitrate, um, you certainly wouldn't want an ignition source anywhere near a ship or a truck. Um, And Colin, I'm not sure if you recall the story um, around us trying to engage the operations around the the concept of this potential risk of transporting ammonium nitrate. Um, But the day before the workshop, um, an unnamed competitor of Rio Tinto actually had a truck roll over. um, And um, there was talks of, this explosion being a little bit like an earthquake and the the aftermath of the ammonium nitrate going up um, certainly wasn't pretty. Um, So, I mean, the nature of the conversation today is certainly we're not gonna get into critical control management and and how you do that. Um, More around a consideration when you are managing contractors and suppliers is, are you um, effectively um, managing um, those critical controls? Um, does it align with your major unwanted events? Is there a mechanism there to identify your critical controls, communicate, set expectations of some description? Um, Colin, from your example, um, uh, I mean, from your experience, can you provide any examples where um, either with your role in the hydrocarbons unit at Rio Tinto or even in your current capacity where you see critical controls actually adding value to the nature of um, the engagement in the commercial arrangements.
2: Yeah, so I think think the word here, like you said, Mark, contractor, right? Which which by definition means there's a contract there. Um, there there's there's some examples I think right across industry that I i worked with where health and safety isn't necessarily uh, clearly embedded in the contract, uh, it, and I think it's more important now than ever that that health and safety was, is very clearly called out in the governance framework. So if there is a contractor monthly report, it would be essential that you would have, for example, the HSE monthly figures coming out, you know? And if you don't get that every month, well, that in itself is, is an indicator of, you know, why didn't we get it? You know, let alone um, not understanding what your safety systems are. So I think, I think sort of the basics of, of that is important. And then putting health and safety on the scorecard, the balance scorecard, the dashboard, call it what you want. I think that's important. But it also needs to be written in the contractor. The contractor will provide its health and safety um, performance in a dashboard every month and then make it contractual. If they don't, you know, you've got a, a really strong opportunity then to uh, to go back through the contract and, 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 and make it reinforceable. You may think this is simple stuff, but, you know, it's not necessarily in all contracts. But the example I can give you is um, in particular for critical controls um, and, and a leading indicator. For example, you take freight and um, quite often freight is loaded to a certain weight on an axle. Well, you know, if 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 the if a trucking company goes to a way bridge and it's over the weight, that should be recorded, put into the database and reported then to yourselves. Because what you want to know is, let's say over a quarter, you've had seven breaches or your suppliers had seven breaches. Well, that's an indicator that things aren't right. Right. And you've got to address that with them and say, hang on a second. You know, we've got three per quarter because, you know, there's always a variation. Now you're on seven. It's a red light. Come in. It's in the contract. We want a conversation with you because I have seen it before where these examples around them. Um, the the you know the 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 buyer or the the team who who own who procure the service have challenged a challenge the supplier and they says well basically um, Mr. Buyer it's not in the contract so uh, we'll do what we want and I've seen that a couple of times actually so being quite clear what your critical risks are having them understood put them into the contract if they're important to you five or six of them and then track and maintain but make sure that in the contract because then you can call breach and then you can performance manage the contract. So yeah, call it out, understand it, and put it into the contract. And then, um, then, you know, I think that's step one, basically.
0: Thanks Colin. Um, and certainly um, dealing with the shells and the Chevrons on the world um, make it easy to report on dashboards. I'm just, um, contemplating the people on the call scratching their heads saying, How am I going to get my little contractor to give me a dashboard? <laughs> um, but I think, you know, based on our experience, Colin, um, where the resources and the nature of the contract allows for that, it certainly can be really powerful. Um, we're going to um, tie things up in a second. Um, Chris has also um, provided another comment in the chat here around um, having different processes to fill requirements based on size, frequency, and risk. So uh, thank you, Chris. So I guess just to wrap things up, um, you know, four things that um, we're seeing at the, at the moment, and certainly um, some valuable information from Colin around what's happening in the, um, the economy at the moment is that there is a mismatch um, between supply and demand, um, be that materials, supply, um, skills shortages uh, of people, both employees and contractors and, 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 and contractor management. Um, this is having an impact on job demands and resources. Um, there's been lots of research out there and very topical at the moment around psychosocial risk and the impact of the mismatch between job resources um, and job demands. Um, and obviously, you know, that in, that, that plays out in, in physical safety um, activity as well. Um, Colin spoke a lot about compromising values. So... Um, When people are under pressure, when when there's um, a squeeze on money or or when there's time pressures, um, it's human nature for under-pressure styles to come out, um, and sometimes it's not pretty. Um, But certainly being aligned with value seeking, makes some tough calls and having really effective leaders who know when to compromise and know when to actually draw the line um, is certainly really important, particularly in tough times. Um, And then um, just to wrap things up, you know, another really important factor around performance of both contractors and suppliers is really understanding what your critical few are, um, you know, allocating your resources accordingly and um, having some sort of mechanism to ensure that those controls are actually effective. So, you know, the old quality versus quantity, um, certainly focusing on quality um, has has lots of benefits. So, Sarah, um, we'll wrap things up there. there are QR codes on the on the presentation there if people want to connect in any way. Um, there's links and things to our website as well. Um, but we've got a few minutes now, Sarah, for, for people to fire some questions. Hopefully some tough ones all lined up for, for Colin and not myself. But certainly we're open to answering any questions that people might have. Okay.
1: Um, we're... Hopefully we'll get a couple of questions just now, but I did get a couple in um, emails before this event. So, sorry. Um, One was, what is the importance of WHS, sorry. What is the importance of WHS clauses in contracts?
0: So I think um, Colin's almost answered that one already, I think in terms of um, particularly the the compliance and legal aspects of it. um, you know, you'd like to think that in turn then drives the right behaviour and culture as well. Um, Colin, is there anything else you wanted to add, um, noting the time?
2: No, I think just uh, just participate. I think for health and safety people, they, they often don't get to participate in the specification writing uh, in tenders. Um, and, and they usually get involved when the incident has happened and they're doing incident investigation. Uh, I'd encourage uh, the health and safety teams to get, if they can, get in there early and, and influence the specification before it goes out, so it can it could be written up accordingly in the contract.
1: Okay. Uh, another question that came in via email: What examples can you give when leading indicators give rise to conversations with contractors?
2: Yeah, I think I think that earlier one about the freight one was uh, was uh, and and the axle. It may well have covered that one. So. Um, uh, and, you know, and I think another one is, is maybe the drug and alcohol testing, right? You know, if uh, that is also a, a good place to think about leading indicators and tracking that and making sure those things happen. I, I've seen quite a few contracts with that uh, explicitly called out. And I think most company policies have those. But equally, so is maintenance of, of, of assets. Because um, if if you stop spending money on maintaining your assets, that could also be a leading indicator to think about. Okay, well, the, the, this could turn ugly if if uh, if organizations suddenly you know don't repair their taxis or their Ubers, for example, and they run them to the ground. You don't want to be traveling in one of those scenarios. So, so the, but these are the questions that that need to be asked: Is how 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 is your budget? Can you show what you spend? Are you on spend? And if they tell you, oh no, we've done a 10% cost saving this year on our maintenance, to me that's a red flag. I'd be worried, and I want to know why.
1: Okay, well, we don't have any um, more questions. I will put a link to uh, your website um, in the chat to everyone. And, um, yes, we do have a question that always.
2: I think there is a question there, actually, from Michelle.
1: Yes, do you want to read it, Colin, or do you want me to?
2: Uh, Look, you go ahead.
1: Michelle asks, many contracts just state must follow whs legislation and company safety management system without much detail i have advised companies to be more specific but they seem to be
0: resistant so i think um colin spoke a little bit about the benefits of um being more prescriptive in your contracts um you know on the flip side um you know that there there are other ways that you can set expectations um, without them necessarily just being in the contract, but um, often it's a balance between being overly prescriptive, telling the contractor exactly what to do and how to do it versus um, giving them information um, around your hazards and, and letting them control the risks in a and being reasonably reliant on them to do so. Um, so um, certainly um, not a one size fits all response. Um, But a good question, nevertheless.
1: Okay. All right. Well, I've shared a link to your website, which I know has some um, good uh, blog information on there too. Um, So we're right on time. Um, So thank you very much, Mark, Colin. We'll send out those emails later today. If anyone has any questions, they can contact your organisation. The link will be on the email as well. So um, thanks for joining us. No,
2: thank you. And uh, yeah, if anybody needs a bit of help putting uh health and safety into the contracts and commercial stuff, obviously Hay Procurement's happy to uh to provide some some guidance and some support and uh yeah, help help you work on the commercials. Okay, thank right. you
1: Thanks, everyone. Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Bye. See you Bye. next week. Bye.